It's June 2019, and the crowd at the Chase Center in San Francisco encourages their Golden State Warriors to hang on against the offensive might of the Toronto Raptors. The Warriors are desperate, facing elimination. The lead swings back and forth, but in the final minutes, the Raptors pull ahead. Masai Ujiri, the Raptors' president, watches from the tunnel leading onto the court. He's expecting to join his team in a historic celebration. Yet at this moment, the pinnacle of his sports career, Ujiri will have to endure a horrific confrontation that haunts him to this day, the kind of incident no white sports executive is ever likely to face. I'll explain what happened and why it's important next in this episode of We Are the Cougars, Diversity and Inclusion Education. Second down and four. Kaepernick keeps it. Fooled everybody. Colin Kaepernick. What a game. Um, the original name, that's a black man named Cassius Clay was my slave name. I'm no longer a slave. And here comes Robinson trying to steal home. He's safe, says the ump. I went on the courts with just a ball and a racket and a hope, and, and that's all I had. Being in the First Nations kid, like, there's not many in the NHL, so I was just thinking, you know, it's, it's a, it would be just a dream come true to get picked by anybody. Hi, and welcome to We Are the Cougars, Diversity and Inclusion Education, a podcast series produced at Mount Royal University. I'm Brad Clark. I teach on issues of race in the media and ethics in the School of Communication Studies. This podcast is coming to you from Mount Royal University, which is located in the traditional territories of the Nitsitapi Blackfoot and the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Siksika, the Bagani, the Gainai, the Sutina, and the Iahe Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation. Cougars Athletics and Recreation condemns racism and oppression. Mount Royal University strives to provide an education and experience that is equitable and inclusive. In this episode, we'll start to unpack privilege, a subject I'm deeply qualified to discuss. But let's go back to Masai Ujiri, the man who built the Raptors into NBA champions and who, in the last year, became the focus of the very racism the NBA has been fighting. Ujiri was born in England to Nigerian parents. He grew up playing soccer until he was about 13 when he fell in love with basketball. He played college hoops for Montana State University, but never quite made it to the NBA as a player. Still, his passion for the sport eventually took him to the NBA's executive suite, and his leadership brought Toronto its first championship in 2019. Now the Warriors just inbound, and that's it. There's a new NBA champion, and it's a team from Toronto, Canada. We the North are now we the champions. But just as the Raptors are about to celebrate, perhaps the most important moment in Canadian basketball history, Ujiri is running head-on into racism. When Ujiri attempts to join the celebrations on the court, calmly pulling out his credentials, a sheriff's deputy shoves him twice and yells at him. That's clearly seen in this recently released video. But before the video came out, Ujiri was accused of assaulting the sheriff's deputy, of striking the officer in the face, and Ujiri faced possible charges. In fact, that deputy is still suing Ujiri for assault, despite the obvious video evidence. 
It's hard to lose sight of the fact that no other NBA executive, most of whom are white, has ever experienced that kind of police aggression in an NBA building. For years, black and indigenous people have asserted that police treat them differently than white people, that unconsciously or consciously, they are assumed to be connected to crime or wrongdoing, like sneaking onto the court after a playoff game. And typically, those assertions are often met with denial from law enforcement and skepticism from political leaders, even when the assertion comes from an NBA executive. What's different now is sometimes the racism gets captured on video for everyone to see. Uh, okay, thank you. Um, I'm glad to see everyone. Uh, Ujiri welcomes reporters to the end of the season news conference in September, and his unique status as a black sports executive will once again dominate the ensuing coverage. After some questions about the NBA's involvement in Black Lives Matter, a white reporter asks him a question about high rates of gun violence and deaths in Toronto. For people who understand the racist counter-arguments against Black Lives Matter, this is a dog whistle for black-on-black crime. Ujiri answers politely, but TSN's Kayla Gray isn't standing for it. Um, I guess I'll start off with this, kind of going back to Steve Simmons's question, which essentially is a what about black-on-black crime wrapped in, well, should also the Raptors focus on gun violence? I'm wondering, as a black man, when you are spending time talking about racial injustice and how we fix systemic racism, how frustrating is it for you when you hear, but, but what about this? Yeah. And it's, it, it's frustrating, you know, it, it's, um, you, you, you know how it is. The, 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 the matter that's at hand now, you know, like that to me is, is Black Lives Matter. You know, like um, we, we, we really have to face that um, uh, straight on. The Toronto Blue Jays and the Maple Leafs supported Black Lives Matter too. But none of their executives were asked what their organization should do when black people commit crime. Why does this double standard matter? Masai Ujiri's experiences, being roughed up by police, being accused of being the aggressor, facing lawsuits and charges before being vindicated by yet another video, tell us how things are different for black people, people of color, and indigenous peoples. Dozens of white pro sports executives can support Black Lives Matter without question. But Ujiri is asked to justify his opposition to police brutality because some black people are committing crimes. The point here is that lived experience for racialized people and for indigenous peoples is different than it is for white people. There is systemic racism in the world, the enduring legacy of colonialism and settler expansion. And because there is systemic racism, navigating all manner of human existence is harder for some and easier for others. That's what race scholars refer to as white privilege. Privilege in this context is the unearned benefits that accrue to white people because there is systemic racism in society. Privilege also applies to people who are able-bodied, who are cisgendered, who are heteronormative. That is, people who are not discriminated against for having a disability, for being transgender, for being LGBTQ2S. When we look hard at systemic racism, we see how society is structured in a way that supports racial inequality. 
everything from lower employment rates to what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission determined was cultural genocide in the case of Indian residential schools. Let's look at the data for Indigenous peoples in Alberta compared to non-Indigenous. Life expectancy for First Nations individuals is 72.5 years, 10 years less than for non-Indigenous. That's about the same as for places like Cambodia or Guatemala. Compared to non-Indigenous Albertans, First Nations people experience double the rate of infant mortality, triple the suicide rate, twice the prevalence of diabetes, and five times the rate of visits to emergency rooms related to narcotics and opioids. The Métis in Alberta generally have better outcomes than First Nations, but worse than non-Indigenous. The inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls found First Nations, Métis and Inuit women are eight times more likely to be the victims of violent crime. Sadly, there is no shortage of examples of systemic racism experienced by Indigenous peoples. The news is filled with examples every day. The numbers come largely from Health Canada and they paint a grim picture of water quality on First Nations. And for some, it's worse than others. Take Neshkataga First Nation in Ontario. People there have been boiling their water for the last two decades. There are three First Nations in BC with boil water advisories going back 16 years. Between History explains the inequity. Canada's racist colonial past, the Indian Act, the reserve system, the residential school system, the 60 scoop of Indigenous children from their parents. Statistics Canada data also show poor outcomes for racialized groups. Third-generation black people average $32,000 per year compared to $48,000. The unemployment rate is almost double compared to other groups, graduation rates are lower, and arrest and incarceration rates are much higher. The flip side of systemic racism is white dominance. You only need to look at the world of politics and business to see this. Canada's 13 premiers are all white. 11 are men. 89% of all political party leaders in Canada, provincial, territorial, and federal, are white. The board of directors in charge of Canadian corporations are almost exclusively white. Less than 1% of corporate directors are black. The numbers are even lower for Indigenous peoples. Keep in mind, racialized groups and Indigenous peoples make up almost 30% of the population in Canada. And of course, that number is much higher in some cities and regions. Race Forward in the United States, an organization that works to explain racism and offer strategies, provides short explainers on systemic racism on its website. Oh, hey, I didn't see you there. You know, if you're like most Americans, you probably say to yourself all the time, systemic racism, is that really a thing? Well, did you know that back in the 1980s, there were less than half a million people in the U.S. prison system? But now, thanks to the war on drugs, there are more than two million. Did you know that out of every 100,000 Americans, about 700 are incarcerated? But out of every 100,000 black men, over 4,000 are incarcerated? And that one of the many effects of that trend is, combined with felony disenfranchisement laws, it means that 13% of black American men are denied the right to vote. Did you know that? Do you know what that's called? That's called systemic racism. And yes, it's really a thing. It's really a thing in Canada too. African Canadians make up 3% of the population in Canada, but 10% of prisoners. 
Almost a third of all inmates are Indigenous, yet First Nations, Métis and Inuit make up only 5% of the population. It's really a thing. But there's a temptation on the part of some white people to try and explain these things away, usually with sweeping generalizations about Indigenous and racialized peoples. Versions of the same arguments we've heard over police killings of Black and Indigenous men. You know, well, they must have been doing something wrong to find themselves in that situation. But the numbers, those stark statistics, show the huge discrepancies. If we live in a fair, just, and racially equal society, how can there be this massive divide in all measures of well-being? Hey, line up! Line up! Everybody line up! We're about to race! Everybody line up! You might have seen this YouTube segment before. It's had lots of views. Maybe 30 or 40 college students stand in small groups on a sports field in a wide variety of shorts and singlets, hoodies and sweatpants, headbands and ball caps. They're getting ready to race against each other for $100. But the organizer gives some people a head start based on privilege. Take two steps forward if you had access to a private education. Take two steps forward if you had access to a free tutor growing up. He gives the runners extra steps if their parents are still married, if they've never had to help their parents pay the bills, if they've never had to worry about their phones being shut off, if they've never wondered where their next meal was coming from, and so on. Before the race begins, the field has spread out with white students in the front. And it's only because you have this big of a head start that you're possibly going to win this race called life. That is a picture of life, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing you've done has put you in the lead that you're in right now. That's a pretty clear picture of white privilege, a kind of built-in advantage over non-white people. It starts with whiteness being the norm, the default in colonial societies settled by Europeans. If I say to you, that professor is married to a black man, in your mind's eye, what is the race of the professor? Chances are you saw the professor as white. You see, our society tends to assume people are white, and if they're not, we add a racial descriptor, black or brown or Asian or Cree. A writer, I mean a white writer, named John Rosenberg, came up with a list of some of the ways he has privilege over people who are racialized. Three examples. I have the privilege of learning about my race in school. I have the privilege of soaking in media blatantly biased toward my race. I have the privilege of escaping violent stereotypes associated with my race. The bottom line is white people never have to face the systemic racism that disadvantages indigenous peoples, African Canadians, or people of color. But the term white privilege gets a lot of people, a lot of white people's backs up. So there, there is a lot of misunderstanding about what privilege is, but what it is not. Privilege does not mean that you've never suffered hardships or that you haven't worked hard. It doesn't mean that you've had an easy life or that everything's been handed to you on a silver platter. That's Mount Royal's Janalee Morris, our feature expert from our episode on cultural competence. She's also well-versed on privilege. 
all it means is that any of the difficulties that you have faced have not been as a result of something, some attribute that's assigned to you for just being, such as the color of your skin or your, your sexual orientation. It doesn't mean that you've had an easy life. It just means that any difficulties are not due to these things that you had nothing to do with in, in, in being. I think it's it's really difficult for those of us who haven't had what we would consider a privileged life, right? For those of us who worked hard to to you know get an education or have a stable career or, or you know buy a home or all those kinds of things, to really think about how how privilege um, has really affected those things because it is it is invisible. But I had an experience um, a while ago that really made this really salient for, for myself. Several years ago, I was in a position where I had to, I had to move out of a, a place that I was renting and was having a great difficulty finding a new place to rent. It was in Calgary and about eight years ago in the time when there was no vacancy rates. So my parents were able to help me, not financially, but they co-signed a mortgage for me so that I could purchase my own home. In order to co-sign that mortgage, they had to put up some collateral. And what they were able to put up was our farm, uh, our farm that was homesteaded by my great-grandfather in 1905, which was homesteaded because that land was taken away from the Indigenous people of Treaty 4, through Treaty 4. So my privilege in being able to buy a home um, had nothing to do with the money part of that, but had everything to do with the fact that my parents own land in Treaty 4 territory, they were able then to put up. Uh, and, and that's privilege. That's privilege because other, other people would not have that opportunity. Remember at the start of this podcast, I said I was deeply qualified to talk about this subject? Well, I am the poster boy for privilege. As a white, cisgender, able-bodied male, I do not experience discrimination for who I am. I navigate life only needing to speak my first language. No one asks me where I'm from or mispronounces my name. I breeze through airport security. No one follows me in stores. That's not true for those of us who are black or a person of color or indigenous. Dolly Thickboom knows this all too well. She plays middle for the Cougars women's volleyball team and is a third-year sociology student. The most experiences that a lot of black people have is just walking into a room and automatically feeling all eyes on you. Um, you're walking into a store, people start following you. Um, this happens so much, uh, too often. You'll just walk into a store and you'll have security guards just following you from aisle to aisle. And it's nothing new, it's nothing like random. It's always to be expected whenever I walk into a store. The feeling that that can have is so dehumanizing to the point where you feel uncomfortable in your own skin. And I don't think anybody, I don't think any white person has ever felt like that. In moving through life, I've faced challenges and I've had to work through them but race has never been one of them. White people like me are overrepresented on TV, in movies, in politics, in academia, in news media, in comic books, everywhere. 
but we don't see it. Despite the unseen advantage, lots of white people become defensive when talking about privilege and race. Robin D'Angelo has written a book that explains that defensiveness called White Fragility. She says many white people do not see racism as a system. For those people, racism is expressed by individual racists who are intentionally being mean. So when they hear someone say, that's racist, they hear it as, you just called me a bad person. And they stop listening and push back. How do so many of us who are white individually feel so free of racism, and yet we live in a society that is so profoundly separate and unequal by race? And the question that's never failed me is not, is this true or is this false? Is this right or is this wrong? But how does it function? How do these narratives that I tell, how do they function? When I tell you, well, I'm just an individual, why can't we all just be individuals? When I tell you, I was taught to treat everyone the same. When I tell you, but it's focusing on race that divides us. When I tell you, but I have lots of friends of color. Those narratives have not changed our outcome and they function to take race off the table and to exempt the person from any further engagement. And in doing that, they function to protect the current racial hierarchy and the white position within it. It doesn't have to be what I'm intending to do, but it is the impact of those narratives. Some scholars have described white privilege as the power of normal and the power of the benefit of the doubt. You can see how Masai Ujiri was denied that one in the incident at the NBA Finals. But privilege can also be used to confront and address racism. There shouldn't be guilt or defensiveness, but a willingness to be uncomfortable and to advocate for change. What can you do? Educate yourself. Read books and articles by people of color and Indigenous authors. Follow them on social media. Learn and understand the violent history of colonialism, its racist policies through history, the impact of government actions such as residential schools, slavery, head taxes, and internment camps. Use privilege to advocate for a fellow student or co-worker who's being treated differently on the basis of their identity. Indigenous peoples, people of color, black people can't be expected to fight racism alone. Your 2019 NBA champions, the Toronto Raptors. Masai Ujiri's story has a happy ending, despite not being given the benefit of the doubt initially. There's still lots of work to do in the fight against racism. We can use our privilege in that fight and in the fight against all forms of discrimination. The We Are the Cougars Diversity and Inclusion Education podcast is produced by Cougar Athletics and Recreation. Alex Brody, Stu Blay, and me. We'd like to thank Ornella Nzinduki Yimana, Marty Clark, Steve Kootenay Jobin, and Janelle Morris for their insights, wisdom, and knowledge. We'd also like to thank members of the Cougars BIPOC Committee who initiated and guided this project. More information about the We Are the Cougars Diversity and Inclusion Education podcast is available online at mrucougars.com. I'm Brad Clark. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.